So on a long retreat like this, one of the things you'll find in the teachings is that we're often repeating ourselves or amplifying or exploring areas that we've already talked about because what is true is that all of these teachings are pointing in the same direction. And we really recognize that for each of us, there are different ways in, different doorways, different things that might connect for each of us. And at different times in our practice, we might hear something new or differently. And so as we give the teachings, especially in these evening discourses or talks, we're not trying to you know, convey all of Buddhism or have you learn or understand in detail um, some of the, the teachings of the Buddha, because actually retreats aren't the best place to do that. Our minds are in a, a different place in that kind of learning academic mode. So I'm just saying that because the talk tonight has some content to it. Um, just let it wash in and out as, as, and use what you see fit. I really trust what I call Dhamma osmosis, that if you just sit in this field and hear these teachings over and over again, voiced in different ways, with different emphases, different um, pointings, that something will land. And what's most important is what supports mindfulness and clear seeing. So all of the offerings are made with that intention, and we know, you know they'll land differently with different people. But it's not only us that repeat ourselves. Uh, the Buddha repeated himself a lot. If you've read any of the discourses, you know, there are themes that he returned to over and over again. And even within any one discourse, there's a lot of repetition. Again, it was a, a style of the time and also a helpful tool because they weren't written down, so it aided in memory. So there's a lot of repetition, but all with this clear and specific aim. The Buddha taught, as he said, suffering and the end of suffering. And I always um, hold that pointing whenever I'm reflecting on a teaching or a practice. How does it relate to understanding suffering? How does it relate to ending or lessening suffering? Because Ajahn Sumedho would say you have to know suffering, understand it, to know the end of suffering. So this exploration is always key. It's what we keep coming back to. What causes suffering? What is it? Like, how do we come to the end of suffering? Suffering, we're translating this word dukkha. I think someone talked about it in, a, in another talk. Um, and there's different kinds of dukkha. The first kind that's often talked about is dukkha dukkha. And that's what you might call garden variety dukkha, just the dukkha of unpleasant experiences, of pain, of painful sensations, of um, old age sickness and death, of loss, just that direct experiencing that will be inevitable if we have a mind and a body, if we're human, even for animals, they have this kind of dukkha. But as my friend and colleague Sylvia Borstein says, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And here she's pointing to how we, a lot of the time, create or exacerbate our suffering. And this is one of the areas that I want to be talking about tonight. Carol spoke the other night about the teaching of the two darts or the two arrows, where the first one is this impingement 
um, of painful experience, whatever it is. And the second dot is all of the wailing and the lamenting, the why me, and it shouldn't be, and it's not fair, and you know, the, the excuses and the blaming, that we actually increase the sense of suffering. And also in that teaching, uh, pointing to how for most of us, the only way we know to get out of that kind of suffering, that kind of unpleasant Vedana, is to chase after the pleasant. That's our only strategy, or our main strategy, I should say. And so in that, we're perpetuating our suffering. And when the Buddha talked about the cause of suffering, the classic um, teaching on that is in the Four Noble Truths, where the first Noble Truth is there is suffering, and our practice is to understand it. And the second Noble Truth is the cause of suffering is tanha, or craving, this grasping, this wanting, this is the cause of suffering. Goes on to talk about the third noble truth, the way to the, that there is an ending of suffering, and the fourth noble truth, the path to the end of suffering, the eightfold path. This, this uh, construct of the four noble truths and its clarity is another pointing to the brilliance of the Buddha and how he taught this um, clear seeing of the human condition the cause of suffering and the ending of suffering, right there in the Four Noble Truths. And as I said the other day, the deconstructing of experience, when we kind of take it as a whole, you know, the human condition, samsara, it's overwhelming, it's unworkable. But you break it down, you deconstruct it, you bring it into its component parts, and we can find a way in, different ways in, to begin to understand this. And so the Buddha was always pointing to look at the processes that are at work here. See the causes and conditions that are keeping the momentum of this whole experience going. And that within that, as we've said a number of times, there's nothing solid, lasting, or permanent. No self, with a capital S, to whom this is happening. This is, again, what he was pointing to with all of these different teachings. So traditionally, uh, craving is pointed to as the cause of suffering. Sometimes you'll hear that ignorance is actually the cause or that craving includes within it greed, aversion, and delusion. So all are kind of pointings to suffering. But in this talk tonight, I want to explore a close uh, relation to craving that's also seen as a source of suffering, and that's clinging clinging, upadana. And craving and clinging are kind of inextricable. You know, one leads the other, very hard to actually um, separate. But I'm hoping that through talking about it, the Buddha, again, in his deconstruction, differentiated these two aspects of our relationship with experience, craving and clinging. In talking about it, you may get more of a sense of what he was pointing to and how to practice with it. But even as I talk about clinging, a lot of what I say, you could say about craving and vice versa. They're so closely allied. So again, don't want this talk to lead you to go crazy trying to distinguish or is this craving or is it clinging and trying to put them into boxes. Whenever we're talking about this felt sense of experience, you know, it doesn't come in neat neat separated boxes, but we can see patterns. 
we can see constructs and conditions, conditioning happening. And as we get more quiet, as we get more clear and more sensitive and more interested in these details of experience, we perhaps might be able to tease out a little bit, again, not the idea, but the felt sense, the difference between craving and clinging. So just to talk a little bit about craving, because it's the basis for clinging, craving is obviously or essentially for what we don't have, right? We don't tend to crave what we have. I think Guy used uh, this uh, teaching the other night, you know, you don't crave a hand at the end of your arm, as long as you have one, of course. If you don't have one, then you might, but if you have one, you don't tend to crave it. But we can have craving about something we have if we want it to stay the same, if we want to, um, don't want it to change, if we want more of it, this relationship you could call craving. So about the hand, we might want the hand to be a certain way, we might want it to be strong, to be not too small, to be unblemished, um, whatever. There can be this relationship that you could call craving. Craving is all about a leaning towards and a trying to hold on to. And you can feel it. You've probably felt it energetically. Then it's a little leaning forward, a little leaning into it, like, ah, just out there. And what's interesting is it brings with it delusion, the delusion that out there somewhere, because it's not here right now, is happiness, is the thing, the experience, the person, the relationship, whatever it is that will bring me happiness. So crave, a craving comes from a sense of deficiency, some kind of lack in the moment. It's a sort of grass is greener thing. Out there is what I want, need to be happy. So this leaning into, leaning forward. And when we're in this mind state of craving, which can be pretty often, we're in the realm of what in the Buddhist cosmology is called the realm of the hungry ghosts. Again, there's a whole cosmology in Buddhism, which for the Buddha was quite real. He often visited these different realms and gave, gave teachings, etc. But we can also see them kind of uh, metaphysically, uh, that they're actually just representations of our mind state. So the realm of the hungry ghosts is filled with these beings that have big bellies, long, thin necks, and tiny holes for mouths, and they can never stuff enough in to feel satisfied. So there's this eternal hunger. Anyone relate to that? I mean, we get well-fed here and still can have that wanting, that wanting, that wanting for something else. Craving can have a pleasantness to it because we're in the fantasy world of imagining getting what it is we want. But as we get more sensitive, if we actually feel into craving, it's dukkha. It's the definition of dukkha. Because it's, it's, it's unsatisfying because um, it's about lack. If we really see what's happening and we let go of the delusion, it's about not having what we think we want. So it can be, um, we can see the dukkha in craving. Clinging is more seductive because we have the thing, right? Grasping and then clinging. All we have to do is hold on, right? All we have to do is hold on. 
unfortunately, that's not the end of it. So I'll talk more about that. As I said, in this uh, sequence is often understood that craving leads to or conditions clinging. And this is classically pointed to in the teaching on dependent origination. It's a teaching on these 12 links that starts with ignorance, goes through talking about how as a human being we have consciousness, etc., nama rupa, um, but through experience, through contact with the world, we crave and then cling to what's happening. So it's, uh, in, it's a, 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 an inextricable part of this cycle of ignorance and how it leads to suffering. And if we don't bring wisdom in, that cycle just repeats. And so it's a, it's a necessary and inevitable step if there's not wisdom, that clinging is part of that process. In Pali, the word for clinging is upadana, holding on, holding on to what we have or think we have, I mean, when we explore this, because we can't cling to what we don't have, right? We cling to what we think we have, what we think we have this relationship to. So it's when we get entangled up with experience and things. We've, we've grasped them now, we've drawn them in, and somehow we think we own them. And the literal meaning of this Pali word upadana is fuel, as in its, or sustenance, it's what keeps the process of selfing, of becoming going. It feeds that sense of self through this illusion of holding on. The next link in the chain of dependent origination is becoming. So craving leads to clinging, clinging leads to becoming, becoming leads to birth, birth as soon as there's birth, there's death, old age, sickness, death, which is the long hand for suffering and the cycle just keeps going. We may give a whole talk on this. I'm just going to touch on these few links in the center of this teaching. So clinging leads to becoming, leads to a solidifying sense of self. There's movement that solidifies, craving to cling to becoming. And it, Craving, I see it sort of energetically like a vine growing up around a tree. Or if you've ever seen in slow motion some kind of tendrils like a pea shoot or something that has this clinging nature growing around and twirling. And, you know, if it's given long enough, it'll completely cover whatever it is it's growing on. It has this sense of getting completely enmeshed in whatever it is and completely engulfed. This process of clinging is central to the creation of self. I think I said in another one of my talks that I collect meditation cartoons, and when many of them have a, a gross misunderstanding of what meditation is, but they're getting a little more sophisticated. So here's one I saw uh, a while ago. Um, it's a riff on a reality show called The Amazing Race, which we have in America. It's one of these things that probably, if they can make money off it, it's probably in other countries as well. I'm sure all of those things cross-fertilize. But Amazing Race, is, it's a competition where pairs of people, partners, uh, have to go through all these obstacles and travel around, you know, literally thousands of miles to, to f achieve some object. I've never watched it, don't have any idea what it does, but one of those reality shows that are, 
I'm, I'm hoping someday we get tired of them. It will, it'll happen, won't it? We'll have an end to reality shows, but it's not here yet. Anyway, in this cartoon, there's a couple watching television. And the television, you know how they make the television kind of leap out of the floor because it's blaring out something. And the words are coming out of the television, obviously advertising something. And it's saying, this week on the amazing race to enlightenment, can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Bob and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to the self? <laughs> so they're onto something here. I hope you don't get eliminated from the, uh, it's not a race, hopefully, here at IMS, but relentless clinging to the self. Because when the Buddha talked about the aggregates, the Pali word is kanda, in Sanskrit, skanda. I'll use kanda in the Pali. He very rarely just talked about the aggregates. He always talked about panch upadana kanda, the five aggregates subject to clinging. Because the aggregates are just these processes that are happening. It's the clinging that determines the suffering nature of them. And we don't have to crave the aggregates. They're here. They're going on. Body, mind, consciousness, Vedna, you know, these things are happening. Also, we don't crave them, but we cling to them and try to shape them to our liking, try to make them what we want them to be. And so the Buddha said, we need to look at what we do in relationship to the aggregates because the clinging to them is what creates suffering. The Buddha said, as long as I did not understand the five aggregates in, the, in terms of their individual nature, arising, cessation, and the way to their cessation, I did not claim to have attained perfect enlightenment. So understanding their nature was central to his enlightenment. So he talked about them all the time, but particularly pointing to how clinging to them causes subject uh, uh, suffering. How we get caught, we get identified with individual aggregates or all of them kind of together. Because in and of themselves, as I said, they're just happening. They're not a problem. The Buddha had aggregates, arhats, enlightened people. Aggregates, they have bodies and minds and consciousness. It's the clinging that's the problem. And the very same aggregates with wise view or understanding are the doorway to freedom, how we find freedom. So in and of themselves, not a problem. And right there in the First Noble Truth, which as I said, the First Noble Truth is there is suffering. The, again, from the teachings, the Buddha said, now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Getting what you don't want is suffering. Separation from what you want is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging, Panchupadanakanda, are suffering. So it's the clinging that's the problem. And this leads to, um, or the Buddha also spoke about it in this sort of synopsis way, a classic important teaching where he said, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. And I've heard Joseph talk about this many times. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to 
as I meal mine. And he'll say, you know, I, I always love this teaching. It's such a powerful teaching. I talk about it. I teach on it, um, reflect on it. And then one day he realized, oh, it's not just a teaching. It's a practice instruction. And it really revolutionized his practice to actually, in his moment-to-moment experience, look for where there was clinging, could he let go? I've heard him talk about it many times. I asked him if I could share this, and he said, go ahead. And so it led to him coming up with one of his great pithy one-liners that he said I could share. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. Don't cling to anything. But just to see again and again, this is the relationship we tend to have to so much of our experience, grasping and clinging. And so exploring this terrain, you could say, is really the heart of our practice. Clinging and not clinging. Clinging and letting go. Suffering, end of suffering. Again, that's where we are. So again, from the text, the the Buddha said there are four kinds of clinging that we tend to do. And what bhikkhus is clinging? There are these four kinds of clinging. Clinging to sensual pleasures, clinging to views, clinging to rules and vows, clinging to a doctrine of self. This is called clinging. So we'll go through these. Clinging to sensual pleasures. Again, a kind of garden variety clinging. We like the stuff we like and we want to get more of it. And this idea, this delusion that there's something out there that's going to do it for us. If we just get the right thing or more of what we like, that's going to be happiness. And we kind of recognize that the things in the past, they they did something, but they didn't do it. We just didn't actually try hard enough or it wasn't the right thing. So this hunt for pleasant experiences and it, it leads us to be very object or experience oriented. We have like a radar. Where's the next pleasant hit? Where's the next place of comfort? And so we can see this even here on retreat, just this searching, searching for things to be more pleasant. With the minimal amount of things there are to do here, how much time we can spend you know, with a, just arranging a day of when you'll walk and when you'll sit, where the sun might be shining and where there's the view of the tree turning red and what time to have a cup of tea and, you know, in the morning in this seat and the afternoon in that comfy chair. And nothing wrong with any of that, but we want to pay attention to when we're constructing our day around that seeking for clinging to pleasant experiences because that's where we get trapped because it's always more, right? All the pleasant experiences you've had in the past, are they serving you now? I mean, sometimes there's a pleasant memory, but in our immediate experience, yet we're still led to there's something out there, this belief, this delusion. I saw this poem a while ago in the New Yorker by Kurt Vonnegut, who's actually a science fiction author. I didn't know he wrote poetry, but Here's his poem. It was about Joseph Heller, who's the author of Catch-22, which is a novel came out, what, in the 60s, 
50s, 60s. Anyway, it was a bestseller. It was a great, very funny, uh, black kind of humor novel. Um, but this is his poem called Joe Heller. True story, word of honor. Joseph Heller, an important and funny writer, now dead, and I were at a party given by a billionaire on Shelter Island. I said, Joe, how does it make you feel to know that our host only yesterday may have made more money than your novel Catch-22 has earned in its entire history? And Joe said, I've got something he can never have. And I said, what on earth can that be, Joe? And Joe said, the knowledge that I've got enough. Not bad, rest in peace. The knowledge that I've got enough. That's letting go of clinging to some sense that more is better. And again, Carol talked about the the two darts and that chasing after the pleasant as a way to avoid the unpleasant. Really interesting to look at the ways, both gross but even more interesting, subtle ways that we do that. Entertaining ourselves with fantasies, as I said, arranging our day. Um, And it's not that, as I said, you know, it's wrong to have pleasant experiences, but we have to look at motivations and intentions and what is being cultivated through that. Because our practice here is what supports mindfulness, what supports clear seeing. And when we look at this movement towards the pleasant, movement to getting what we want, usually our conventional way of understanding this is is that I, Sally or whoever, me, want this, so I go and get it. Andy Olensky, who is a scholar and teaches at um, the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies just down the road, says differently. He says, actually grasping Wanting creates a sense of self to get what it wants. He says, what becomes clear through this analysis of moment-to-moment experience is that grasping is not something done by the self, but rather self is something done by grasping. The self is constructed each moment for the simple purpose of providing the one who likes or doesn't like holds on to or pushes away what is unfolding in experience. Interesting to play with this as you see the wanting come up and the strategies, the sense of self, the energy, the rush, creating that out of this force of wanting, this habit of wanting, of chasing after pleasant experience. When we start to look in this way, we can see that self, this thing we sense of self that we think is so real, is actually a process. It's a verb. It's a construct. It's always being created in response to experience, in response to what's arising at the fi- in the five aggregates. Process rather than noun. Verb rather than noun. The second place that the Buddha said we cling is to views, ditti, is a Pali word for view. And of course, particularly to wrong view. You don't cling to right view, that's insight or understanding. 
And so what are wrong views? They're the kind that lead to suffering. The classic um, definition of, of right view is understanding the Four Noble Truths. So wrong view is not understanding the Four Noble Truths or not acting as though you understand the Four Noble Truths. But really you could look at any view that creates suffering, that creates tension, that creates separation as wrong view, and particularly views that create a sense of self. So examples. Here at IMS, they just had their 40th anniversary, so this place has been running for 40 years. Over that time, they've been developed many the way we do things at IMS. These are supported by many pieces of paper with instructions written on them, how you clean, how you wash, how you do all sorts of things, all the signs around, how you flush, how you dry your hands, you know, all of these signs. They're helpful, especially when we're in silence, when and how to do things, when the shower hours are, all of that. Like the Vinaya, you know, the, the book of monastic code, you know, there's 237. How did they get created? People did, they screwed up. So the Buddha said, no, 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 we'll make a rule. You don't do that. Okay. You know, they started just with a simple eight or 10 that we, we take, can take the eight here, add a couple more about not handling money. And it's a pretty good Vinaya, but he ended up with 230, 227, I think it is, um, because people did things and he said, no, no, no. So it's a bit like that here. We need a sign. We put a sign. Can you put a sign up? Tell people what to do. So a lot are clear. They're written in signs. Many unspoken rules, right? How you are as a meditator here at IMS. One of the biggest views that cause suffering, I see, I know it in myself, I see it in others, is when someone breaks one of these rules, does what you're not meant to do, right? This is uh, the cause of so many what we call VVs. You know about VRs, Vipassana romance, is that when someone becomes the ideal, the love object? VV, Vipassana vendetta, where that person is wrong, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, whatever it is. Um, And we have to really realize how much suffering there is about that. None of us are the ruler of IMS. Even Joseph isn't. He, you know, we always say, Joseph, you can do it. He goes, no, I'm not, I don't run this place. I can't rule it. But we tend to, right? We make these right and wrong. And if someone's wrong, we make them bad. We make, make this problem. And it's the cause of so much suffering because we aren't in control. We certainly can't control the other person and it can have an impact. It certainly is a lot of suffering for us as we're obsessing about what someone else is doing, but other people can feel the impact of being on the receiving end of that. And especially as we get more sensitive and more uh, in the field, it's something to really pay attention to. I can remember being on retreat here years ago, doing a three-month retreat. Um, and this is when what's now the welcome room was the yoga room. And, you know, it's just a little sort of cubby way there, that, you know, walkway to get into it. There's no good place to put your shoes. And I always wondered where, where you meant to put your shoes, you know. And I go in there, can I just leave? Some people would leave their shoes outside and some people wouldn't. But I went in there one day. I just left my shoes right outside the door and I'd always wonder, oh, is it in the way? It seems okay. It's not, you know, it's not a busy time. I just put my shoes there. 
to go do my yoga, I come out, my shoes are gone. I know you heard that talk of Sharon's where her car was gone and the person said, are you sure? <laughs> She's like, I think, I think it's gone. I knew my shoes, you know, I'd left them there and they were gone, you know. So it was like, there's that impact of who would do that, you know. Am I someone's Vipassana vendetta? Are they, you know, got some agenda about me? Did I put them in the wrong place? And someone said, these shoes shouldn't be here and put them somewhere else. So, you know, if I felt very hurt and, and vulnerable and fearful. And so I looked around the shoe room, the coat room. I couldn't find my shoes. I went back to my room and, you know, oh, you know what it's like when you feel you've been singled out for something. But I needed my shoes, you know, I don't have any other shoes here. I just, these were my indoor shoes. I use them every day. And so I came back later in the day and, and looked around, you know, and you feel a bit obvious looking around the shoe room, you know, it's like you should, it's either there or not there. But I, I kept, and finally I found one of my shoes on the very top left of the, the rack that faces the road. So I had one shoe, but obviously someone put it there. So I started looking and then, you know, way around on the other side, down the below, I found another shoe. So someone had obviously taken them and done that. I'm like, oh, who would do that to me? It's so mean. And, you know, and then I'm, everyone, you're like, are they, you know, is that the person who doesn't like me? Was, you know, you, oh. But, you know, you breathe and go on. I survived somehow. But later that day was the bell ringer for what was then the 9.15 sitting that went at night, that went till 10, for those of you who think 9 to 9.30 is too much. I was the bell ringer for that sitting and tucked under the bell out there was a little note and the note said, dear nine o'clock bell ringer, I'm so sorry. I did that to your shoes. I thought they were my friend's shoes and I was playing a joke on them. I'm, you know, and they really apologize. So it was nice to feel that, but not a very nice thing to do, even to a friend, you know, <laughs> play a joke on them like that. But I tell this, just the sensitivity we can have. And if we have, you know, some idea of what's right and wrong, we are not in control here. And it's suffering. It's suffering. It creates suffering inner and outer. Again, the Buddha, in his wisdom from the Sutta Nipata, says, those attached to perceptions and views roam around the world annoying people. <laughs> so clinging to views, a source of suffering, creating self around. The third kind of clinging is clinging to rules and vows or rites and rituals. Um, in the context of the Buddha's time, this was really very real because there was a um, Brahmanical culture where there was a priestly caste who kind of had control of the spiritual um, practices of the time and people would have to go to them for rituals, for offerings, for, for prayers, for purification, for sacrifices. There was also a, a, a lot of belief in ascetic practices as these things would be liberating. That's the belief. It's not in and of themselves, but that these things alone could be liberating, that like bathing in water could be purifying and liberating. And the Buddha said, no, no, that, that is not the way to liberation. So today we might think that we don't believe things like that, but it's interesting to look at the the ways that we do have these um, beliefs, habits, you know, they call it transductive reasoning. 
Well, if you, you wash your car and then you, you're sure it's going to rain or, you know, do you have a lucky hat that you wear to your sports events or, you know, all of the superstitions that they have in sports. Walking under ladders, even though, you know, there's a re real reason why you shouldn't do it, but we can have kind of a felt or a superstition about it, just that we've taken on. Knocking on wood when something happens, these are all things like that, that uh, we can believe in as a, some kind of protection. But the last clinging is the most interesting and the most pertinent to what we're talking about, is clinging to a doctrine of self or a sense of self. It was so in the Buddha's time. It's even more so now. I mean, I, I can't, in some essential ways it hasn't changed, but we live so much in a self-centered culture, right? I mean, the, the, the very mediums that we use invite it. Facebook, what is it all about? Look at, you know, what am I doing now and my kids and my holiday and my this and my that. And then it's, it's other uh, side, selfies. I mean, just their very name, selfies, didn't really used to exist, right? How many years ago someone wouldn't know what you meant when you said selfie and now it's like, everywhere. Used to be, if someone went on holiday, the pictures they would have would be pictures of the things they saw, right? <laughs> now it's like the thing in the background and these one or two big heads, you know? And what is that saying? Look at me. Look at me. I, I was here. I'm more important than, you know, the Vatican or Venice or whatever it is that we're looking at. And, you know, talk about suffering around selfies and self. People die taking them, right? You know, they're like eh, <laughs> falling into the Grand Canyon and off cliffs and literally, literally. And it's so interesting that, you know, it's the phones really that made it possible because of the screen they have. You know, we've all had cameras for years, but the idea of selfies didn't exist until we could see and look at it. Oh, you know, there I am. So take a photo. It's crazy. So we have to look, what, what do we do that creates this self-centeredness, this doctrine, you could say, of self? And the way the Buddha invited us to explore this is through the five aggregates. He said, that's where you create a sense of self, around these experiences um, in the body and the mind. And so we can look at these specific things that the Buddha pointed us to, to see where do we actually cling and therefore create a sense of self around. He was very specific about this. And I pointed to um, the teaching of dependent origination where there's a central set of links that are often pointed to, actually usually pointed to, as the place we can uh, let go of the cycle, break the cycle. And that's contact, any sense impression, feeling tone, the Vedna in response to that, and then the craving, the grasping that comes as a result. We're often pointed to notice that in our experience, and it is a very helpful place to pay attention to. But it goes by very quickly, right? The contact, feeling, craving, blink of an eye. And if we have the sense that we have to notice the Vedana and cut there, we can often feel helpless. 
lost because it moves so quickly. I am actually become interested in the next set of links, which is craving, clinging, becoming, because they actually last a little longer. There's the potential more of a felt sense in that process. And I, um, my understanding, or how I talk about the wheel of dependent origination is anywhere that you bring mindfulness in, anywhere that you wake up in that process, you can break or reduce the cycle of suffering. So this can be a really helpful place to look. Craving, clinging, becoming. Because we can feel that very physically. The grasping, that energy, and then the bringing towards, I want, I get, I am. You can feel that, right? You know, the, I've talked to people about feeling the sense of self arising. It's sort of like this swirl of energy. Up, for me, it's kind of swirling and up, or it can be a contraction. It's like, you know, it's like the peacock, you know, here I am. We're doing that all the time, right? You know, <laughs> selfing, selfing. Feel it, feel it quite physically. And the allure, of course, is we're always under the delusion that by in being in this process, we're actually getting and holding on to what's going to bring happiness. But the Buddha said again and again, no, that if we think that's happiness, we're going to suffer. It's not the way to happiness. So we can invite into our practice, our mindfulness, exploration of the aggregates and how we create self clinging and therefore self around them. Some of them are more obvious than others, so I'll I'll go through them. And Guy gave a whole talk on the aggregates, but particularly pointing to the emptiness of the aggregates, that there's no uh, solid self at the center of them. As I said, we often talk about the same things. This is pointing more to how we cling to the aggregates and, and create a sense of self. So the first aggregate is that of body, rupa. Um, means form, but as far as our practice is concerned, it's the body. And as Guy said, you know, there's so little about the body that was actually our choice or in our control, the color of our eyes, our height, you know, a general body shape. Yet we can be so self-conscious or so proud about this manifestation. We can be self-conscious or proud about our looks or our abilities. Here on retreat, the sensitivity we can have to the different bodily functions that are just very natural. How many of you have had exquisite suffering because you wanted to swallow and you thought it was too noisy? And as soon as you start thinking about it, it's like someone has the microphone on and you think it's you know, rippling through the whole hall. Just this self-consciousness about a very natural functioning of the body. When we look and see what this experience is, it's, it's just these, the body is a product of all of these different causes and conditions over our whole lifetime. And sure, we can moderate some things through diet or exercise, you know, the different ways we take care of the body, but, or even surgery these days, you know, change how, how we look or how the body is shaped. But it's essential nature, not in our control. And for all of us, it's essential nature, going in one direction only, right? Not in our control, 
old age sickness and death. So we start to see this is not a reliable place to create a sense of self around. But we do all the time. We do. The wise relationship to the body is it's our vehicle for practice, for awakening, for living a life. And sure, we want to take care of it and, and be you know, responsible uh, guardians, you could say, of this, this body, but we don't own it. And we are not it in some essential way. But that's often clearer to us how we can um, have a sense of self about the body. The, the other one's not perhaps so obvious. Vedana or feeling tone. Again, the Buddha said we cling to it and create a sense of self around it. Start to look at this. What we can see is how much we orient around what we like and don't like and how we gravitate to people who share our likes and dislikes. Right? It's a source of all identifications and alliances, cliques and political groups, um, political parties, those people who are working for you know, social justice or uh, environmental action. Whatever they're doing, they think that's the issue that everyone should be working on and all the other issues are subservient to that issue out of their Vedana around that issue. And so we gravitate to those who share our views and reject those who don't. We're the people that like to meditate, you know? So here we are, forming a group or a clique. And we think that the way we're relating to things is the correct way, the right way, right? Again, create this sense of self. Again, could explore this a lot, um, but to really recognize Vedana is conditioned. It is not intrinsic in the object. It's a conditioned thing that is very individual. So not a solid, reliable place to create a sense of self around. The next aggregate, perception, sanya. It's so interesting that the Buddha highlighted this as important enough to be one of these five bases for clinging. One of the aggregates, he said, really pay attention here. So we've talked about it a bit, this process of knowing or naming. You know, bell, flower, if you're more sophisticated, orchid. You know, maybe you might know it's a, I can never say it, phallum substance or something, orchid, you know, type of orchid. Different kinds of naming. But what's interesting is we assume everyone shares our perceptions. This is how we self around it, that that this is the right perception, that this is how things are. And one that's always interesting to me is the temperature in this room, which has a, um, what do you call it, a reality. I mean, these new clocks we have all have the temperature. So I know it's 75 degrees. It varies between 72 and 75. Is 75 warm or cool? I see some people in T-shirts and other people bundled up in shawls. Yet it's the same temperature, right? But we have a perception of being warm or cool. There's no right or wrong with it. But this is really hard to perceive how we relate to it because it's so immediate. We're so trained um, to do it. We often only notice perception when we see something that's unusual or something kind of jars us. But beginning to pay attention is so important because we're choosing all the time what we, what we notice. 
we're picking out of this vast field of all of the sense contact that's happening, what we're perceiving and therefore having these subsequent relationships to. And, it, you know, when, when we're in a good mood, we perceive what's pleasant in the experience or everything become, more likely everything becomes pleasant in the experience. If we're grumpy, a little out of sorts, our perception is everything is bad or wrong or difficult, right? Annoying, shaped by perception. Mindfulness can reveal how through that functioning we're creating clinging to it as being the way things are and creating an identity and a sense of self around it. I don't have time to go into these in a lot of detail, so just touching on them. The next aggregate sankharas, volitional formations, particularly mental formations. So this is so much the field of our meditation, our thoughts, our moods, our emotions, our reactions to things all of the different kinds of thoughts, our memories, our planning, our rehearsing, our our, uh, fantasies, our papancha. In some ways, we can identify more strongly with that aggregate than even the body. You know, we can kind of see, oh, the body changes or not the body, but the, the thoughts, the moods, the emotions, right? That's really all of my memories. Isn't that really who we are? Yet again, as we look, so changeable, so unreliable, so deluded a lot of the time. So we really have to pay attention. That's why we bring mindfulness to it, to see that these are just fleeting experiences. Again, I've probably used this line, thoughts only have the power we choose to give them. If we see them clearly, they're just a blip. If we take them up, cling to them, and hold on to them, there's the world and right and wrong and good and bad and the sense of self as strong as ever, seeing this choice point. And especially as we quieten down a little and have just even moments where there's not thinking or a lot of thought. Yet, I think as Guy said this morning, the whole process still functioning quite well not necessary to add the I am, or I'm doing, or I'm thinking. Just being, no selfing. And then the last one, consciousness, vijnana, is the most subtle. And the the definition in in the terms of the aggregates is the consciousness at the sixth sense door. So the I and forms an I consciousness, the knowing of sights. It's that kind of pre-verbal knowing of experience. Um, And so we can practice with this. We've talked a little bit about this, where we can shift to always relating to the object, the sensation in the body, to the awareness or the consciousness that's knowing that object. And this can be an interesting place to practice, but also can be the last vestige or the last refuge of the I. We can have a sense of self as the knower, self as the witness. And the Buddha said, also know, not even here. Consciousness also arising and passing with objects, not another place to land. So with the aggregates, the, the teaching is, 
They're always there. It's not as though our practice is to get rid of them. Body, consciousness, thoughts, feelings, we need those to function as human beings. And they're not really a sequence. They're always arising and passing, all right, arising and passing. But the Vedana perception sankhara, feeling tone, perception, and mental formations, there is a relationship there that is a little sequential, just like it is in dependent origination. Body and consciousness can kind of feel a little more steady. They too are impermanent, arising and passing, but our knowing of them has more of a steadiness to it. But we can start to see how Vedana, perception and sankharas are constantly changing and informing each other and therefore not a reliable place to land and find a sense of self. Hard to tease out, but again, as we get more mindful, as we get more interested, um, we perhaps can see. And sometimes it happens so quickly that we can't be aware of it. But that's when what I call post-mortem mindfulness can be helpful. Sometimes we can bring awareness into something that's happened. Again, I can have an experience here on retreat. It was probably that same retreat, actually, a three-month retreat. And back in those days, things were a lot more spartan at IMS. Um, The food was simpler. The conditions were a little more funky. It was still a great place to practice, but there was definitely a sense of simplicity, enforced simplicity here. I can remember one of our friends, I think it was Sharon Salzberg, saying about a yogi, she said, no, I think it was about a staff person. She said, I can't be responsible for David's state of mind if the cook serves a dookie beans one more time. It was like a dookie beans four times a week. And, you know, it was very simple food back then. But there were occasionally dana offerings of food. And one day in the midst of a lot of aduki beans, uh, there was a dana offering of ice cream at the back table. So, and I didn't know it was that, you know, you're going through the line, you know, seeing and taking and whatever. And, and I'm, was a very, I was very slowed down. I usually came to lunch last, so I wasn't in the, the hubbub. And so by the time I got to seeing there was ice cream, you know, it was half melted. And there was so much craving for the ice cream and also so much aversion as in, didn't the cooks, why didn't they put it on ice or put out a second round? And what about us who eat slow and eat late and there's not enough? And uh, But I go over there and I get my bowl and I'm scooping and I'm scooping and I walk to my plate and the place and then there's the, do I eat the ice cream or do I eat my food? You know, because the ice cream is melting. It's like, no, you have to eat the food, but there's this, you know, relationship to the ice cream. <laughs> I'm lifting, chewing, chewing, chewing. And I, but I think I'm being mindful, right? I'm lifting, chewing, chewing, finally finished. And I remember that first taste of ice cream, and I had the thought, oh, this is why I like ice cream. You know, it was smooth and rich and creamy, even though it was mainly melted by then, but still. But again, I thought I was being mindful, just tasting and smooth and creamy. Finally finished the ice cream. There's no more ice cream. It's gone. So walk out. I was exhausted after that. It was so much turmoil from dealing with the ice cream. You know, it was meant to be so, so much happiness, but I sit, walk, sit, walk. The next morning in the Q&A, 
someone puts up their hand and says, you know, I thought I was doing really well with mindfulness until they put out the ice cream. And they just went on to talk about the whole movement of mind they had and the liking and the not liking. And that's when the light went on. Oh, I thought I was being mindful, but I was full of craving and aversion and irritation and judging and all of this. And I hadn't noticed any of it. I was so both thinking that I was mindful with the, you know, the lifting and the placing and the chewing, oblivious to the craving, the perception of the ice cream, the clinging to it, the craving for it. It was a real wake-up call to me, post-mortem, a day after the fact, of how we need to bring in these more subtle... Well, it wasn't that subtle. I was just oblivious, actually. But that that's more important than the sort of functionality of the movements of the arm or the hand. So, post-mortem mindfulness. Because when we start to look, we see that we cling because we don't understand the three characteristics. We think we can hold on to something and make it last, but its nature is anicca, impermanent. We think that there is something reliable that we can that can bring us happiness and satisfaction, and there isn't. Its nature is dukkha, unreliable. And we imagine that we're in control, and we're not. So through mindfulness, we begin to see the futility or the suffering in clinging by looking at our direct experience. And then there's a natural movement to letting go. We don't have to force ourselves to let go. And when we experience non-clinging, we see for ourselves the possibility of happiness or freedom, because then we're in alignment with the truth, reality, how things are. And independent origination is it's a teaching of how ignorance leads to suffering, these different links conditioning each other. There's also the cessation cycle. So if there's no craving, there's no clinging. If there's no clinging, there's no becoming. If there's no becoming, there's no birth, old age, sickness, and death. Even if there's less craving, there's less clinging. There's less becoming. Even if we're just reducing suffering, that's important. Because as Joseph said again, it doesn't matter to what you don't cling. If there's less clinging, there's less suffering. And the words of Arjun Sameda, who's always so real about these things, When you are suffering, why am I suffering? You say, why am I suffering? Why am I miserable? Because you are clinging to something. Find out what you are clinging to to get to the source. And this is in quotes. I'm unhappy because nobody loves me. That may be true. Maybe nobody loves you. But the unhappiness comes from wanting people to love you. Even if they do love you, you will still have suffering if you think that other people are responsible for your happiness or your suffering. Someone says, you are the greatest person in the world, and you jump for joy. Someone says, you are the most horrible person I've met in my life, and you get depressed. Let go of depression. Let go of happiness. Keep the practice simple. Live your mind, live your life mindfully, morally, and have faith in letting go, in letting go of clinging. And to finish with the words of the Buddha, Bhikkhus, when ignorance is abandoned and true knowledge has arisen in a bhikkhu, in a practitioner, then with the fading away of ignorance and the arising of true knowledge, 
they no longer cling to sensual pleasures, no longer cling to views, no longer cling to rules and observances, no longer cling to a doctrine of self. When they do not cling, they are not agitated. When they are not agitated, they personally attain Nibbana. They understand birth is destroyed. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. The ending of clinging. Let's just let the words settle into silence for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Time for walking before the last sit with chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.